Welcome to the Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 70. We are going to discuss West Coast Hotel versus Parrish. This is a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1937 that marks the end of the Lochner era. Of course, y'all remember Lochner versus New York from two weeks ago. We discussed that in episode 68. Lochner was decided in 1905, and it used an 1897 case, Allgaier versus Louisiana, as its foundation. So from the beginning of the 1900s until 1937, you had the Lochner era. This case ended it. During that era, during the Lochner, that's when the U.S. Supreme Court routinely invalidated legislative attempts to regulate businesses, particularly regulations concerning employee hours and wages, minimum wages. That's what this case is about. And for example, Lochner said New York's attempt to limit bakers from working more than 60 hours a week was a violation of the right to contract, both the employees and the employer's right to contract. The Supreme Court also threw out legislative attempts to implement a minimum wage, but this case this West Coast Hotel versus Parish, the Supreme Court overturned that entire line of cases, in essence, and upheld a minimum wage statute from Washington State that, interestingly enough, only applied to women, which presents its own set of problems. Interestingly enough, the Supreme Court, in this 1937 case, had struck down a similar statute from New York just months prior to this decision. What was the difference? You might have heard of... FDR's court packing plan. It was officially a piece of legislation called the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937. The central provision of that bill would have granted the president, FDR, power to appoint an additional justice to the U.S. Supreme Court up to a maximum of six for every member of the court over the age of 70 years and six months. Now, this was introduced in 37, the same year West Coast Hotels was decided. Now, that legislation never went anywhere, some say because of this case, that the Supreme Court had been overturning a lot of FDRs and progressive legislation from the states, and FDR was unhappy with that, so he came up with this court packing plan, is what it is in essence. And some say that Justice Owen Roberts, who was in fact a member of the 5-4 majority in that New York case a few months prior to this case, this West Coast Hotels case, he switched his vote. And we'll talk about why. He, he does his best to explain it. But the court went from 5-4 invalidating states' minimum wage laws to 5-4 allowing them. This is called by some as the switch in time that saved nine. Cute little nursery rhyme, right? So Justice Roberts' vote switch was the one that saved the nine justices from having their power diluted by additional justices that would have been appointed by FDR. So that's where that comes from. But Justice Roberts, in a memo released after he left the court, he was asked to write this by Justice Felix Frankfurter to explain why he, he did what he did, how he voted, Roberts denied that FDR's plan had anything to do with that vote. And I have a link to that one-page memo in the show notes where Roberts discusses that. So check that out, along with the link, as always, to the actual case, as we always do here on The Law. 
Because if you're really interested, go to the source. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. So if you're on your favorite app, just search for Speakeasy Ideas. You'll see the little logo and uh, subscribe. And we'd love for you to follow the podcast on social media. You can go to Twitter at The Law, D-K-W, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with D.K. Williams. I'd love to hear from you. Rate, give me a review. That would be great. Review, comment, subscribe, you know all that. It helps spread the message. I am available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, having a beer. Don't ever forget that part. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Or if you just want a beer, contact me directly. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with D.K. Williams via a sponsorship. That would be awesome. So who's involved in this case and what are the facts? How did it get to the U.S. Supreme Court? This is one of those cases where we can go straight to the words of the opinion. This is what the majority said. The appellant, which is West Coast Hotel Company, conducts a hotel. Imagine that. The appellee, Elsie Parrish, was employed as a chambermaid and, with her husband, brought this suit to recover the difference between the wages paid her and the minimum wage fixed pursuant to the state law the Washington state law. The minimum wage was $14.50 per week of 48 hours. Think about that. The appellant, the hotel, challenged this act as repugnant to the due process clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. The Supreme Court of the state reversed the trial court, sustained the statute, and ruled in favor of Elsie Parrish. So the minimum wage, so she wasn't even getting paid what the state said the minimum wage was. $14.50 a week of 48 hours. We usually think of a week of being 40, right? But let's adjust for inflation just so we can know what kind of numbers we're talking about in today's money. So $14.50 a week for 48 hours is 30 cents an hour in 1937. If we adjust for inflation, $14.50 in 2019 would be $261.95. You spread that out over 48 hours, that's $5.46 an hour. And that would be the minimum wage, and she was not getting paid that, and that's why she sued. Now, you'll remember Lochner versus New York from episode 68. That's the case where the U.S. Supreme Court said that New York couldn't limit the number of hours a baker could work, couldn't work any more than 60 hours, because that was an unconstitutional violation of the right to contract. And that basic premise was the law for several decades, early part of the 1900s, up until 37. So this case ends that era, the Lochner era, and paves the way for FDR's New Deal and government planning of the economy at every level. This is a this particular case is a due process case involving state regulation. And Wickard v. Filburn, which we discussed in episode five, was decided by the Supreme Court just five years later in 1942. That was about federal planning and regulation and the Commerce Clause, because the Commerce Clause does not restrict state power. It only restricts, or it's supposed to restrict, federal power. Then we also get into the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment when it comes to minimum wage laws as mandated by the federal government, as opposed to the 14th Amendment and the due process clause there, which applies to these states. So this was a five to four decision. And let's go over a little bit about each justice. I like to do this periodically, especially in these older cases, because I think it's important to kind of personalize these people. They're not just names in a textbook. They're actual people, right? And I think it's important to look at the justices 
from last century and compare them today in regards to their law schools? Are they Ivy League elites like they are now? Did they serve until they died or they or they like, I am not going to ever retire because I don't want the current president to get the power to replace me if I can help it? Or did they retire and then keep on living and do something else? Those issues are important today. And I think it's good to compare history with what is going on now. So the majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes. He served as the Chief Justice from 1930 to 41. So again, that's 11 years. And I think it's important to remember how long these people are on the bench. It is a lifetime appointment. They can serve until they die or they can retire. Herbert Hoover, who was a Republican, nominated him for Chief Justice. And when he retired in 41, he lived another seven years. He died in 1948 at 86. Interestingly enough, he had been an Associate Justice prior to that. So in 1930, he became the Chief Justice, but in 1910, for six years, he served as an Associate Justice. And at that time, he had been nominated by William Howard Taft, also a Republican. Taft, as an aside, was president, obviously, but later he became Chief Justice. He's the only person in the history of the United States to have been both United States President and Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Hughes went to Colgate and Brown University and then got his law degree from Columbia University, not the country in South America. And he was joined by Associate Justice Louis Brandeis, who served on the court from 1916 to 39, another good chunk of time. He was nominated by Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat. He went to Harvard, so he was definitely an Ivy League elite. He retired and died two years later after he retired in 1941 at 84 years old. Harlan Stone, also in the majority. He was an Associate Justice when this case was decided. Associate Justice from 1925 until 1941. And then FDR nominated him to be Chief Justice, and he did that until 1946. He was originally nominated to the bench as an Associate Justice by Coolidge. He went to Amherst and Columbia, again, the law school, not the South American country. He died while in office, did not retire. Also in the majority, Benjamin Cardozo, rather famous guy. He served for six years from 32 to 38. He was nominated by Hoover, who was a Republican. Cardozo also died as a member of the bench at age 68. Another Columbia guy. Columbia is on a roll here during the New Deal era. Then the fifth and deciding vote was Justice Owen Roberts. That's the guy who switched his vote, switching time, save nine. He denies that, like we talked about. He was on the bench for 15 years from 1930 to 1945, nominated by Hoover. He retired from the bench in 45, lived another 10 years, and passed away at the age of 80. And he was educated at Penn. The dissent, four-person dissent, was written by George Sutherland, who served for about 16 years from 22 to 38. He was nominated by Republican Warren Harding. He retired, lived another four years, passed away at the age of 80, went to Brigham Young and then Michigan Law School. So good, not an Ivy Legally. He was joined by Willis Van Devanter, who served for about 27 years from 10 to 37, nominated by Taft. He retired, lived another four years, died at 81. These guys are living pretty good, long lives. He got his law degree from the University of Cincinnati. Definitely not an Ivy League elite, so props to him. Also in the descent, James McReynolds served from 14 to 41, retired, lived five more years, died at 84, another guy up into his 80s. He had been nominated by Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat. He went to Vanderbilt and UVA Law School. And finally, Pierce Butler was in the descent. He served for 17 years from 22 to 39, nominated by Harding, the Democrat, and died in office. He went to Carleton College. 
So what's the legal analysis? What does the court do here? How do they lay this out? And if you remember what happened in Lochner, they discuss economics, they discuss the power to contract, and if the state had the authority to limit your ability to enter into a working arrangement, any working arrangement you chose. The dissent in Lochner, which is now the majority, or at least the analysis has switched sides, it's not the same court, but the dissent in Lochner said, no, there's a horrible disparity in bargaining power. The state can protect the workers who, for whatever reason, too weak, not smart enough, not sophisticated enough, can't take care of themselves. The state has to. So that was the dissent in Lochner. Now, with this case, West Coast Hotels, that becomes the law. The majority says, lays it out here for you. This case presents the question of the constitutional validity of the minimum wage law of the state of Washington. The act entitled Minimum Wages for Women, because like I said, it did not apply to men. That act authorized the fixing of minimum wages for women and minors. It provides, Section 1, the welfare of the state of Washington demands that women and minors be protected from conditions of labor which have a pernicious effect on their health and morals. Not just their health, but their morals. The state of Washington, therefore, exercising herein its police and sovereign power, declares that inadequate wages and unsanitary conditions of labor exert such pernicious effect. Wages and conditions are separate things, but according to the state of Washington, they are both pernicious. Section 2 of the statute says, It shall be unlawful to employ women or minors in any industry or occupation within the state of Washington under conditions of labor detrimental to their health or morals. And it shall be unlawful to employ women workers in any industry within the state of Washington at wages which are not adequate for their maintenance. And of course, who's going to decide that? Not the worker, a government board. Section 3 says, what is that board? Well, there is hereby created a commission to be known as the Industrial Welfare Commission for the state of Washington to establish such standards of wages and conditions of labor for women and minors employed within the state of Washington as shall be held hereunder to be reasonable, and they'll decide that for you, and not detrimental to health and morals and what shall be sufficient for the decent maintenance of women and, of course, the benevolent government will decide what is such sufficiency. Central planners love commissions. Here they have created a commission to solve what they see as a problem. This is what central planners do and politburos. They create five-year plans and new deals, as CCR noted, wrapped in golden chains. The court goes on explaining the statute. The conference was to recommend to the commission, the state of Washington commission, on its request, an estimate of a minimum wage adequate for the purposes above stated. And on the approval of such a recommendation, it became the duty of the commission to issue an obligatory order fixing minimum wages, which is like fixing any other price. And when prices are set by commissions or any government agency in any capacity, shortages or surpluses are going to result depending on if the price is set too high or too low. Because prices, when they are free to be set by the market, will tell you if you need more or less of something. But as the progressives took over the country in the early 1900s, they decided they were smarter than the market. And they still believe that. And there's no recognition today, or in this case, that an unemployed person makes zero dollars an hour, and the minimum wage is thus always zero. No legislation, no central planning can change that. That's completely ignored in all of this, at least by the majority. And government, and the court here, might as well attempt to legislate gravity. After all, gravity makes women fall, and they break bones, and that's bad. So there must be a state solution to this, right? Well, that's their thought process. 
secondary, tertiary, and even further down the road consequences completely ignored. And these are economic issues. They're only legal issues in regards to the legitimacy of government force to implement them. Does the federal government have legit authority to jail a farmer like they said they did, the Supreme Court rubber stamped in Wickard? Does the federal government have the legit authority to jail a farmer for engaging in activity that is neither interstate nor commerce? Well, Supreme Court said they did. They were wrong, but that's what they said. How about a state government? Do states under the 14th Amendment have the authority to jail an employer for paying someone a certain amount less than is politically favored? Or for that matter, jail an employee for accepting less than is politically favored? In this case, again, the Supreme Court says yes, states do have that authority. The Supreme Court then discusses why they are doing what appears to be overturning a decision they just entered months prior in that New York case. It was Moorhead versus New York where they invalidated a state minimum wage law. The court says, we think that the question, which was not deemed to be open in the Moorhead case, is open and is necessarily presented here. What they're saying here is that it wasn't argued that the Lochner era cases, it was Adkins was a case that dealt with minimum wage wages and said they were not allowable under the Constitution. What they're saying is here that New York case dealing with minimum wages didn't argue Adkins, but now they are arguing it. So now we're going to address it. And now we're going to toss out the prohibitions on minimum wages. We're going to allow minimum wages now. The court goes on. The Supreme Court of Washington has upheld the minimum wage statute of that state. It has decided that the statute, this minimum wage statute, is a reasonable exercise of the police power of the state. In reaching that conclusion, the state court has invoked principles long established by this court, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the application of the 14th Amendment. The state court has refused to regard the decision in the Atkins case as determinative, that's the Supreme Court case that struck down another minimum wage law years earlier, and the state court has pointed to our decisions both before and since Atkins as justifying the state's position that the minimum wage law is okay. We, the U.S. Supreme Court now, in this West Coast Hotels case, are of the opinion that this ruling of the state court demands on our part a re-examination of the Atkins case. So they're re-examining it here in West Coast Hotels. They're saying they didn't examine it in the case just a couple of months prior because they, it wasn't argued. That's what they're saying. That's what Robert says in his memo explaining why he voted differently. Everybody else voted the same, but Robert's the switch that saved nine, allegedly. So that's what that part of the case is about, trying to explain the different results just months apart. And when a appellate court, particularly the Supreme Court of whatever jurisdiction is relevant, when they say they want to re-examine a case, like they say here, that means they are probably about to overturn it. The U.S. Supreme Court goes on. The importance of the question about state minimum wage laws, in which many states have similar laws are concerned. The close division by which the decision in the Adkins case was reached from 23 and the economic conditions which have supervened. Get this part because this is important. So one of the reasons they're looking at this again is the economic conditions which have supervened and in light of which the reasonableness of the exercise of the protective power of the state must be considered. And people wonder why people think lawyers can't write. Here's a good example of it. So all of that make it not only appropriate, but we think imperative that in deciding the present case, the subject should receive fresh consideration. And the dissent specifically calls out this part of the majority opinion. Justice Sutherland in the dissent says that the changing economic conditions do not change the Constitution. So basing a change in a Supreme Court ruling interpreting the Constitution should not be effect 
by supervening economic conditions. And he's right. The dissent is right in that. But the court continues. The principle which must control our decision is not in doubt. Of course it's not. The constitutional provision invoked is the due process clause of the 14th Amendment governing the states as the due process clause invoked in the Adkins case governed Congress. All right, so again, due process in the Fifth Amendment and due process in the 14th Amendment, the court is saying, cover the exact same ground. But the Fifth Amendment applies to the feds, which was Adkins because it was a D.C. minimum wage, and the 14th Amendment applies to the states. They're saying you're going to get the same result regardless of which one you're using, but we have to point out which one applies where. In each case... The Supreme Court says the violation alleged by those attacking the minimum wage regulation for women in this case is deprivation of freedom of contract. What is this freedom? They ask. The Constitution does not speak of freedom of contract. It speaks of liberty and prohibits the deprivation of liberty without due process of law. In prohibiting that deprivation, the Constitution does not recognize an absolute and uncontrollable liberty, heaven forbid. They didn't say heaven forbid, that was me. Liberty in each of its phases has its history and connotation. But the liberty safeguarded is liberty in a social organization, is this in the Constitution? Which requires the protection of law against the evils which menace the health, safety, morals, and welfare of the people. Court says liberty under the Constitution is thus necessarily subject to the restraints of due process and regulation which is reasonable, and they get to decide what that is, in relation to its subject and is adopted in the interests of the community is due process. There you go. They've just overturned Lochner with that part of it. They go on and talk about it for another several pages, but that's it right there. That is the stake through the heart of Lochner. And they just mentioned Lochner in a footnote, along with Allgaier versus Louisiana, that 1897 case upon which Lochner relied. And as I've talked about before, as you guys know, if the court's wrong, it, they sh- it should be overturned. I'm not one that thinks stare decisis, the idea that once the thing has been decided, it's been decided forever, even if it's wrong. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't oppose overturning precedent when it's appropriate. I just don't know if it was appropriate here. And I know this is where the law school professors and progressives get all aghast and pearl clutchy. What do you mean? You don't think the state should have the power to arrest people for working at a politically unfavored wage? Well, maybe not. Maybe they shouldn't have that power. The Supreme Court goes on to bolster its decision to overturn Lochner and says, freedom of contract is a qualified and not an absolute right. There is no absolute freedom to do as one wills or to contract as one chooses. Wow. The guarantee of liberty does not withdraw from legislative supervision that wide department of activity which consists of the making of contracts or to deny the government the power to provide restrictive safeguards. Liberty implies the absence of arbitrary restraint, not immunity from reasonable regulations and prohibitions imposed in the interests of the community. That is the money shot. And who is going to decide what is reasonable? If it's the legislative branch, what does... The judiciary role consists of who is the judiciary to say something isn't reasonable that the legislative branch has said is reasonable. Reasonableness is not a real constitutional standard. Reasonableness, the concept itself, is as pliable as a paperclip. So there's no way the judiciary can overrule the legislative branch on that reasonableness standard without exercising the legislative power, which is outside of their proper role. But that is indeed where we are. 
The court points out, and as Lautner acknowledged, if you recall, that limits on hours, that hours worked in the mining industry and smelting industries were okay. The court in this case says the only difference in those cases and in this one is a matter of degree. And determining that degree is a valid exercise of state power, contrary to Lochner, the court here in West Coast Hotel says. In dealing with the relation of employer and employed, the legislature has necessarily a wide field of discretion in order that there may be suitable protection of health and safety, not to mention morals, and that peace and good order may be promoted through regulations designed to ensure wholesome conditions of work and freedom from oppression, court says. The point that has been strongly stressed that adult employees should be deemed competent to make their own contracts was decisively met and rejected. Nearly 40 years ago, in another case, where we pointed out the inequality in the footing of the parties. All right, that is the entire foundation of most progressive policies. Political ones, economic ones, judicial ones, legislative ones, legal ones. The foundation, the belief that people need a benevolent government to protect them from people in companies who wish to give them money to work for them. Now, the problem is obvious and has been written about for centuries. People in government are no more or less benevolent or malevolent than people outside of government, than people in business. The difference between people in power in business and the people in power in government is that people in business have to be productive. And if they're not, they must become productive or they go out of business. Government employees have no such worry. And if you haven't checked out public choice theory, do so. And again, let me ask a question that is a recurring theme with, with this podcast. Even if such regulations were needed in 1937, let's just assume they were. Are they still needed? Can't we at least ask that question? Can't we explore that? Isn't actual progress toward something to progress? I submit freedom and less government violence is progress and not holding on to 80-year-old policy and older policy or just because it might have been a good idea then. Doesn't progress require new policy to progress every now and then? Holding on to decades-old policy because it was effective back then is the opposite of progress. Let's at least consider that. I don't think that's too much to ask. So the Supreme Court here says, the legislature has also recognized the fact which the experience of legislators in many states has corroborated that the proprietors of these establishments and their operatives do not stand upon inequality and that their interests are, to a certain extent, conflicting. The former naturally desire to obtain as much labor as possible from their employees, while the latter are often induced by the fear of discharge to conform to regulations which their judgment, fairly exercised, would pronounce to be detrimental to their health or strength. In other words, the proprietors lay down the rules and the laborers are practically constrained to obey them. In such cases, self-interest is often an unsafe guide and the legislature may properly interpose its authority. The assumption that companies desire to obtain as much label as possible from their employees is flat wrong. They don't want as much labor as possible. They want the most productive, effective, efficient labor they can get. Those are very different things, but judges don't recognize that because they rarely have to have a job that requires actual production of something, at least anything more than words on a page. And then the Supreme Court goes on, they, they're hammering this point home, that this belief that they have. They say both parties, 
so the employer and the employee, are of full age and competent to contract does not necessarily deprive the state of the power to interfere where the parties do not stand upon an equality? Or will the public health demands that one party to the contract shall be protected against himself? The state still retains an interest in his welfare, however reckless he may be. The whole is no greater than the sum of all the parts. And when the individual health, safety, and welfare are sacrificed or neglected, the state must suffer. It is manifest, the court goes on, that this established principle is peculiarly applicable in relation to the employment of women in whose protection the state has a special interest. Well, within the modern context, I believe that's an incredibly patronizing sentence. Should progress in 2020 include less condescending treatment of women? Perhaps it should. And the paternal condescension continues from the U.S. Supreme Court, approving the state of Washington's condescension. We, the U.S. Supreme Court, emphasize the consideration that women's physical structure and the performance of maternal functions place her at a disadvantage in the struggle for subsistence, and that her physical well-being becomes an object of public interest and care in order to preserve the strength and vigor of the race, the human race. We emphasize the need of protecting women against oppression despite her possession of contractual rights. Hmm, what would modern feminists make of that sentiment? How about this, the court says, in referring to a differentiation with respect to the employment of women, we said that the 14th Amendment did not interfere with state power by creating a fictitious equality. So men and women aren't equal. Pretending they are is fictitious in their concept here. And here we go. The court embraces collectivism in this passage. Legislatures which adopt a requirement of maximum hours or minimum wages may be presumed to believe that when sweating employers are prevented from paying unduly low wages by positive law, by statute, they will continue their business, abating that part of their profits which were wrung from the necessities of their employees and will concede the better terms required by the law. They'll pay the minimum wage. And that while in individual cases hardship may result, so they're at least acknowledging that, the restriction will inure to the benefit of the general class of employees whose interest the law is passed and so to that of the community at large. There's your collectivism. Individuals might be harmed, but that doesn't matter because the legislature, the government, has said it is for the good of the community. As I've said many times, and it's not an original thought, but when the collective is more important than the individual, individuals will be sacrificed. The Supreme Court makes that explicit in that passage. They continue with the victim language. What can be closer to the public interest than the health of women and their protection from unscrupulous and overreaching employers? They, women, are the ready victims of those who would take advantage of their necessitous circumstances. The exploiting of workers at wages so low as to be insufficient to meet the bare cost of living. All right, well, the alternative is unemployment. So you can accept what's offered or go find another job that offers better or not work. So the entire premise of this belief is that being unemployed and making zero is better than having a job and making less than what the government would favor politically. So if you've got a job at $1 an hour, but the minimum wage is $1.50, you don't get that $1, you get nothing. The court goes on. The exploitation of a class of workers who are in an unequal position, exploitation, with respect to bargaining power, 
and are thus relatively defenseless against the denial of a living wage, and this is 1937, not a democratic debate in 2020, is not only detrimental to their health and well-being, but casts a direct burden for their support upon the community. Yeah, that could come straight from uh, Karl Marx or Bernie Sanders. And if there is an unequal bargaining power, and there can be, unions can and will help fix that problem. And the dissent says that explicitly. The dissent says the ethical right of every worker, man or woman, to a living wage may be conceded. One of the declared and important purposes of trade organizations is to secure it. The dissent is correct. But the U.S. Supreme Court, the majority goes on in language, again, that Bernie Sanders would support. The community is not bound to provide what is, in effect, a subsidy for unconscionable employers. And the court, again, here doesn't care that the minimum wage law only applies to women and minors and not men. They give the state legislature the power to discriminate in that way. And back up for a second about this subsidy for unconscionable employers. What's the subsidy going to be when they're unemployed making nothing? The Supreme Court says their women's relative need in the presence of the evil, no less than the existence of the evil itself, is a matter for the legislative judgment. So they're saying if women need protection more than men, that's okay for the legislature to decide. And what's the practical effect, a secondary effect that government people aren't very good at considering? What's the practical effect of providing a minimum wage that applies only to women and not to men? An employer is then incentivized to hire a man for less money because there's no minimum wage for the man. So now we've incentivized keeping women unemployed, all in the name of helping the victim while they are creating them. And the the dissent points out the negative effects on individuals in the name of the common good. In Atkins, the earlier case that they're dealing with, it appeared that a woman 21 years of age, and this is the dissent, who brought that suit was employed as an elevator operator at a fixed salary. The state statute in question didn't allow that. Her services were satisfactory, and she was anxious to retain her position, and her employer, while willing to retain her at a salary, was obliged to dispense with her services on account of the penalties prescribed by the Act. Unemployment is a direct consequence of minimum wage laws. But everything that is unfair has to be made fair by government force, right? Isn't that the entire premise of these laws? Alas, everything that is unfair cannot be made fair by government law, by force. There are always these secondary and tertiary and further consequences that cannot be foreseen. There is always the unseen. The dissent goes on. The dissent correctly here says, the question thus presented in this case for the determination of the board, this Washington state board, which is going to declare a minimum wage, the question cannot be solved by any general formula prescribed by a statutory bureau since it is not a composite but an individual question to be answered for each individual considered by herself. The dissent says the Washington state statute that sets the minimum wage only for women is so clearly the product of a naked, arbitrary exercise of power that it cannot be allowed to stand under the Constitution of the United States. Except, of course, the majority allowed it. And the majority killed Lochner, opened the door a bit more toward the massive regulatory state that exists today, all in the name of fairness and the protection of victims who are too weak and defenseless to protect themselves and need a benevolent paternal figure in bureaucracy and legislators. 
and judges. This is the same regulation that requires someone to pay the government money to cut hair or do nails and any number of other things, all in the name of protecting victims when in reality, they're making it harder for people to make money. So Lochner died and the collective state killed it. You can remember this case as the one where the phrase, the switch in time that saved nine, the historical reference to the FDR court packing plan. This is a case where that comes from. Even though that justice, Owen Roberts, denied the FDR court packing plan had anything to do with how he voted. And again, his memo to that effect, along with the actual case opinion, which is always there in case you want to read it, easy access in the case notes. I am DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 70, West Coast Hotel versus Parish, the case that killed Lochner and ended the Lochner era of Supreme Court jurisprudence. We are brought to you in collaboration, as always, with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Go to Twitter at TheLawDKW. Hit me up there. Go to Facebook.com, The Law with DK Williams. I guess that would be the Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching. Contact Bethany at Speakeasy Ideas for more on that. And until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.